Welcome back, folks. Welcome back to Conversations with the Mind. I'm your host, as always, Shane Lamaster. I want to start off by thanking all of you listeners for continuing to listen into the podcast and for continuing to like and share our podcast when we share it on social media. That's really the best way that we can get this message out and um, hopefully spread these messages of hope and change and personal growth to as many people that can benefit as possible. So, Word of mouth is always the best way, so please continue to share these podcasts with your friends and family and continue to like and share our podcasts as we post them on social media and like and share on your own social media. We'll get much greater reach that way. also want to let our listening audience know that you can donate to the podcast if you want. I don't take any profits from the donations. All the donations go towards making the message clearer and better for you, the listener. So I think we're on episode 29 today, Uh, so 11 episodes until I reach my goal of 40 where I will upgrade our microphone systems and computer systems um, and start making a clearer, better message for you guys. Right now we're still recording on the phone, but it still sounds amazing and the response so far to the podcast has been great. So please continue to come up to me and talk to me about the topics that we talk about and also uh, continue to like and share and comment. And keep this conversation going in your own social circles. Oh, there's my dog. He's chiming in too. So he's he's thanking you all as well. Uh, I want to let everybody know that we are sponsored, as always, by my private practice counseling and consulting company, MindOps. You can find us at www.mind-ops.com. I'm a mobile and eclectic counseling and consulting uh, company, and we do one-on-one sessions, distance sessions, telehealth. Uh, so we can we can do sessions over. Um, over Zoom media or some video chat apps as well as the telephone. Uh, I have clients all over the country and a couple uh, overseas as well, so that's great. Um, I also actually just secured an office space in Fort Collins, so if you're in the, in the area in Fort Collins, uh, we can always meet in an office as well. Uh, but I do prefer to go out to uh, the locations where my clients perform if possible just to try and, you know, get a, get a view f- for the landscape that you're performing in and sort of see how the environment can be affecting your performance as well. So we specialize in uh, individual and team interventions, small and large groups, businesses. Um, uh, you know, we have our own YouTube channel, so go check that out as well. Uh, the MindOps YouTube channel, we break down a number of the concepts that we talk about here on the podcast in greater depth. Uh, I believe we have uh, close to 20 videos up there now, so that's awesome. And thank you, everybody, who continues to look at those and, and share those as well. Um, but w- as in the, in the private practice realm, um, as far as our specialties go, you know, we have uh, licensures in addiction counseling, general psychotherapy, um, sport and performance psychology, as well as psychedelic integration therapy. So we pretty much run the gamut as far as mental health goes. And if you have uh, mental health issues um, that you want to work on, or if you just want to improve your mental performance or how you go about your life, uh, please feel free to reach out to us at the website, uh, mindops.com. All right, so on to our good news section of the podcast. We have two great stories today coming from the Good News Network. The first of which, uh, the title of the article reads, Dove is issuing thousands of dollars in grants to U.S. dads without access to paid paternity leave. So this is Dove, you know, the the soap company. And, um, you know, in this article, it talks about how, uh, let's see, there's only nine countries worldwide that do not 
uh, offer some sort of paid maternity, maternity leave um, for the fathers of, of newborns. Uh, United States is one of those nine, so we're way behind the power curve when it comes to this, and Dove has recognized that and wants to, you know, reward fathers for, you know, their, their I guess, their contribution and, and give them an opportunity to contribute more to the early family system development. So I thought that was really cool. They're giving out uh, $5,000 grants. Uh, so if you are a new father and you want um, some extra grant money to help fund your time off of work, uh, you can go to the company's website, Dove's website, and um, it'll, you know, it, it explains how you can apply for the grant. Uh, the program will run until December 31st of 2020, so you've got a couple of years to apply if you want. I thought that was really cool that a uh, private organization is um, sort of filling in some of the gaps in our system that are, you know, unfortunate parts of living in a, a consumeristic, capitalistic society uh, that sort of values... Um, you know, working hours and the father's ability to stay at work uh, more so than the family system development. Um, I thought that was cool. So the second article from the Good News Network that comes your way today, um, the title reads, Bedside Bioprinter May Soon Use Burn Patient's Cells to Print Out New Skin Directly Onto Wounds. And I've been really fascinated by 3D printing since it was first developed. Uh, I know you can get 3D printers for your own home, but really I think the coolest applications of these 3D printers are the printing of uh, human tissues and human cells. I think that it can have a you know, huge impact in our future as far as regenerative medicine, um, you know, the printing of, of organs that... Uh, that have less likelihood of being rejected by your body, you know, if it's printed out of your own cells. So this, uh, this article talks about how they're developing this bioprinter that takes the burn patient's actual cells and then um, inputs it into the system and actually prints, um, you know, um, skin cells or, or sheets of skin for the burn victim out of his own cells. That's pretty cool. And uh, again, the, the, chance of rejection of these cells goes way down if it's created from the, the patient's own cells. So I thought that was a really cool application. I hope that comes about. I think in the article they said they're getting ready to start uh, phase three human trials, uh, which means it could come to market fairly soon. So really pumped about that. All right. So we have a very awesome guest today, a good friend of mine, um, and, uh, you know, a, a fellow... Uh, explorer of life and of learning and of consciousness, uh, Mr. John Hendricks. So John Hendricks is a Georgia transplant. Uh, he's been here in Fort Collins for a while now. Um, I've known him for a number of years and met him through Z's training gym where we trained MMA and jiu-jitsu together back in the day and uh, still train there. Uh, John describes himself as a student and a lifelong learner. Right now he is uh, working on an undergraduate degree in ecosystem science and sustainability at Colorado State University. So some really interesting topics there. That's a brand new program that they have. And I'm sure we'll get into a lot of stuff related to what he's studying. But uh, yeah, John, I want to welcome you to the podcast. Hey, thanks. It's good yeah. to be here, man. So um, I want to ask you the same question I ask all my guests. Uh, I, I only have one standardized question that I ask, and that is, you know, the podcast name is Conversations with the Mind. And I want to know just when, when you hear that phrase, how does it land on you? And, and uh, you know, how do you integrate that? What does it mean to you? What does that phrase, Conversations with the Mind, mean? Uh, subjectively, I'd say it kind of means conversations with myself. 
Because when I think of the mind, I definitely think in terms of me, not in terms of like, you know, a collective mind that everybody's kind of thinking about. So, um, yeah. So discussions that you have with yourself, Mm -hmm. either in your mind or out loud, Mm -hmm. or do you have both? Both. Yeah. Yeah, I talk to myself all the time. (laughs) Yeah, me too. Me too. I think people think I'm crazy sometimes. Um, But from what I've heard as far as like uh, mental health, it's actually fairly healthy to, it's regarded as healthy within my field. uh, If you do have these conversations with yourself, it's a, it's a form of self-exploration or of uh, self-discovery, you know? I, I can't even imagine what life would be like if we didn't have these conversations with ourselves. Can you? No, I can't. Uh, no. Not at all. I, I don't think my, my you know, mind ever shuts off. So I'm always talking to myself about something. I find myself, you know, when I'm walking to class, I'm talking to myself. I've got my book. I'm thinking about what I just did in my class before or, you know, if I didn't understand this concept or if I can relate it to something else. And uh, I've noticed recently, again, I've been kind of, kind of more self-conscious about how I look in public. So if I'm walking down the street and I'm going... You know, just kind of mumbling under my breath and making weird faces that, that I wonder what other people think when they see me walking down the street. Do they think that I'm like a deep thinker? Or do they think that I'm, you know, maybe a little off. Right. Maybe I am. I don't know. So Yeah, a little off your rocker. <laughs> um, well, what do you think of, you know, when, when you're walking around campus and you see other people doing that? What, um, what is your initial assessment or judgment in that scenario? Uh, I just... I don't know. I don't really think about it, honestly. You know, if I notice somebody else, if it's not something that kind of pops at me, mm-hmm. then I just, you know, consider it normal, I guess. It doesn't really catch my attention. Yeah, I totally see it as normal, too. I think when I see people talking to themselves, most of the time, um, I get an initial feeling like, oh, they're just trying to work something out. They're working through a problem um, in their mind, you know, trying to find a solution. And, you know, for me, talking it out has a lot of a lot of benefit, you know, and for me also conversations with the mind also involves journaling, you know, and having conversations with yourself as you're writing and things like that. I'm sure you experience that as you're writing school papers. Mm-hmm. That and well, they also make us. Um, they've I've gotten into a habit with one of these classes that I was saying I didn't think I needed to take, but um, reflecting back on that, writing a journal every week, you write down your reflection, you know, of what's gone on that week. And at first, it started maybe two or three sentences, and now it's become like you know a page long. And they're not really worth any points, like maybe one point. At, so it's really insubstantial, but I'm finding more intrinsic value from it. You know, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm able to, and then I started doing it every day because of this. I'm like, well, I can do it every week. I can do it every day because, you know, I might may have something here that I need to reflect on later, but I know I'm not going to remember this because I'm too busy doing something else. So I can come back. Mm-hmm. You know? I think a lot of people find it difficult when they first start a practice like that to get going Mm -hmm. you know um but for you you know you said it started out as a couple sentences and now it's like a full page Mm -hmm. how did you get to that point where you could start you know writing a lot more uh, detail about what happened in that reflection i think it had to do with it first i i was doing it for just to get a point because we had to it was homework it was just a task just a school task yeah you know just a school task so even if i didn't have any you know, personal attachment to it. Um, I was still doing it and just that habit of just doing it and having other people do it. And then I, I realized that someone else in my class was complaining about it. And I had, you know, maybe said something similar to myself, but I didn't outwardly express it. And um, when I heard them say it, it kind of changed my perspective of it. And I was like, well, wait a minute, it's not really that bad. This There's actually some positives to, you know, this kind of stuff. And that's when it changed for me. And that's when I realized that, you know, I don't care who's reading this. This isn't for them. This is for me. They just need to make sure that I'm doing it. Mm. So then I just started going and 
it's you know it's really helped that's really powerful um i think that if that approach could be applied to any sort of academic endeavor right like sure i mean in in any high school or college situation we all have to take classes that we don't look forward to taking yeah. right things that we initially think are going to be uninteresting or uh, so difficult and technical that how could we possibly find enjoyment in that right yeah. that's what i thought of like statistics classes when i was in my master's program so um but if we go into these um into these situations and even in life learning situations too but it's i think it's more pronounced in academia we go into these situations with um, you know an intrinsic drive to not only learn the material but learn how to apply the specific material to our lives and what meaning and relevance it has to our existence day to day I think that we get a lot more from that experience you, you know what I mean mm -hmm. I do I, I feel more fulfilled you know and like I said I feel more collected I mean it's it's doing something as simple as that is put organized more organization into my life so I'm starting to remember that I have to study for this or that I need to do homework or that there's this extra thing that I need to do or I should be back on campus for some sort of event because I'm more involved in it all together, you know, um, where I, I feel like, I guess, being, being at CSU, I see a lot of students that are just detached, that are just going for a, for a different reason than why I'm going now than, mm -hmm. you know, when I was when I was 19 years old. Right, I was just going to so. bring that up because I've known you for a while and you haven't always had this approach to your school and your studies, mm -mm. you know, like in the past, you were far less intrinsically motivated and interested in your subject matter. Mm -hmm. You know, I think you, you even had a different major back then. Yeah, I was doing, I was doing psychology mm -hmm. at the time, but I, at that time I didn't even have an associate's degree. So I hadn't even touched that tip of that iceberg yet. You know what I mean? And, um, yeah, I just didn't really have direction. I just knew that I needed to do something else. Cause you know, worked, I worked in old town doing security at a music venue and, it, uh, I just did, I wanted something better, you know what I mean? And then trying to find a bunch of different jobs that, you know, they paid well. I could make plenty of money. I could make a living, but I just wasn't happy. So, you know, that's a real reason for me to want to go to school and find something that's fulfilling for me. Um, and then when I heard about, you know, ecosystem science, I said, ooh, well, let me read into this. Let me ask some questions. And, you know, when it, they added sustainability to it, I just said, oh, this is, this is awesome. I like this kind of stuff, you know. Yeah, so that's a brand new program at CSU, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I hadn't heard of it before, but for the Fort Collins area, for our listeners who are listening and live outside of Colorado or outside of Fort Collins, Fort Collins is a really, um, really cool community in that it's right next to the, the Rocky Mountains. You know, we're right in the foothills. There's a lot of um, history for Colorado State University, uh, you know, being an agricultural school at first and really having deep ties into ecosystems and sustainability and uh, environmental um, programs and things like that. You know, we, Fort Collins and Colorado State in particular has been, uh, or Colorado State University has in particular been really on the cutting edge of a lot of uh, environmental movements and, and research. And so it, it makes sense that they have this program. Mm -hmm. so, so you looked into it. How did you, how did you land there? You, you got your associates, right? Mm -hmm. And then right back into CSU. And how did you, what made you land on that, uh, on that subject? Um, well, one of the things was, in all honesty, is how much math do I have to take, right? Yeah, oh yeah, you totally. Know? That's one of the reasons why I picked <laughs> psychology. <laughs> And, um, and then I kind of got over that fear after just thinking about it. I'm like, oh, I could, I could deal with this. But it was more about lo looking towards the future and 
kind of my con- personal concerns about what's going on in uh, our world, you know, because I don't necessarily say you have like, a, I guess, once again, it's just really split where people think there is, you know, climate change and it's human, uh, the human beings are exponentially uh, accelerating it or it's natural and it's completely natural and we have very little effect on it. And a lot of people that are experts that say they're experts, you know, um, they're saying that we have a huge effect on it. But then a lot of people are still saying, well, we still reject this information and say that we don't. Mm -hmm. My question is, well, which one's who's right? I want to know who's right, because the fact is still going to be the fact whether you win or you lose, Mm -hmm. you know, and people still want to know. You know, they'd rather, I, I guess a lot of people are more worried about winning their side winning than they are about actually what's for the greater good, right? So I saw ecosystem science and sustainability, and I felt like I could maybe shed some light, help shed some light on what the hell is actually going on. Yeah. You know? It seems like that polarization between two or more camps is, uh, it's an unfortunate undercurrent or theme in a lot of different domains of our life here in the U.S., Mm -hmm. Um, not just with the climate change issue, but like with politics, right? Like red and blue, right? Uh, And if you're not red, then that must mean that you're blue. You have to identify that way. It's almost expected. It's a pressure. Yeah, exactly. Uh, It's a social pressure, uh, almost like, um, you know, the system has set it up in a way that requires you to take a side. Mm -hmm. Um, And the way that they say, you know, those decisions have to be made are black or white, mm-hmm. one or the other, right? And in my view these days, I think more and more when I see those clearly divided arguments and debates, um, I'm more and more I'm taking like this middle road, you know, like the Buddhist middle way. And I, I'm trying to stand in right in the middle of it and say, well, these are positive aspects of both sides. Mm-hmm. These are negative aspects of both sides or one or the other. And, you know, Instead of having one or the other, why can't it be a mixture of both, right? So with this climate change issue, with people on one side or the other, is it humans or is it natural? I'm I'm one to stand in the middle these days and say it's probably both, mm-hmm. right? Most definitely. Yeah, both. climate change has natural cycles. That's obvious. Mm-hmm. But also, human beings with our carbon emissions are you know significantly making some impact. Mm-hmm. Um, it probably doesn't account for all of it, um, probably not even close. But we are having some impact, and we have some power to lessen that impact. You know, even if we're doing five percent impact, we have yeah. you know we have an opportunity now to lower that to like three or two percent, you know, or less, mm-hmm. or be carbon neutral or be carbon positive. Yeah, that would be sweet, right? <coughs> um, you know, it's uh, it's interesting when you think about it because we are the the first beings that we know of that live on this planet or that exist, you know. That, um, that have the ability to control and guarantee our future. And we're doing some things to go in that direction, but there's a lot of things that we're not doing. We're not guaranteeing it, you know what I mean? We're taking a lot of stuff for granted. Um, and you'll see people say, well, when a volcano erupts, it puts a whole bunch of CO2 in the air. You're very right, it does. That's, that's totally a natural thing. That could be a catastrophic, world-changing event. Um, but at the same time, all of these things that have happened since the past, you know, the ice ages and the melt and it gets hotter and then colder and hotter and then extinctions of, of beings, all of that has, hasn't had the human element taken into account because we haven't, as far as we know, we've never existed. So when you start looking at this same closed system with us, such a growing being on the system, it's completely different than any, um, you know, model we've ever looked at before. So we're still learning every day. Yeah, you know? it's completely novel because, I mean, maybe even if humans were around 
you know, during the Ice Age or before the Ice Age, we certainly didn't have automobiles and, yeah. and uh, power plants and things like that. Unless we just left. Sure. You know? Yeah, unless something happened, maybe Atlantis or something. Yeah, and <laughs> so, don't tell them. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's interesting, too, because I've been having conversations with people recently about how, uh, how it's fun to just kind of think about the possibility that we may not be the most technologically advanced civilization to ever grace this planet. That yeah. maybe, you know, 200,000 years ago, there was way more advanced people doing way more advanced things than we are. Uh, but that those civilizations may have been lost by things like, mm -hmm. you know, cataclysmic well, events. Goes, everything, every living thing goes extinct at one point or another. Mm -hmm. That's, you know, I mean, history says that until something changes, you know, and so far nothing, there's no evidence that shows that we know of. But again, human beings, we're in the grand scheme of things, we're naive, we're young, we're, you know, just a blip, I think, you know. Yeah, I'm pretty humbled about that kind of stuff. Humbling about it, I guess. So, I don't know. Sure, yeah. And, you know, in some sense, we are just a blip. But I think that we're unique and should be grateful for the fact that we do have so much agency over ourselves and so much ability to make positive change, not just inside of ourselves, but positive change out in this collective 3D reality that we all share, you know, and maybe even in the future make positive influences and changes on um, multi-dimensional, you know, layers too, you know, that we're interacting with in every moment, but we, we pay very little regard to. Yeah. Yeah. So speaking of interdimensional stuff, uh, you, I mean, set in setting up this podcast, you briefly mentioned that you've had some, some, um, well, maybe you could talk about like the, the changes you've gone through, the big changes over the, over the last couple of years you've gone through and, um, those uh, mushroom experiences that you've been yeah. having that uh, that have really helped with your integration and your your thought process as you yeah. change and completely unintentional by the way mm -hmm. like uh, when I went to do it it was like recreational I'm hanging out tonight I'm not gonna do anything I'm gonna put on some comedy central or something and mm -hmm. just you know trip on shrooms and I end up laying on the couch and then you let your mind wander as, as everything starts setting in and don't notice, you know, it's colors as much because I'm still cut on, you know, trapped on the inside in my mind. And I start thinking about things in the past. But what's weird to me about it is, uh, say, I think of something and normally I have like a bias about it. So I'm thinking about like, oh, being mad at, you know, your best friend in the third grade for, you know, for whatever reason, he, you know, tattled on you or whatever reason. But whenever I, whenever I look at those things in my normal state of mind, I have a bias. I definitely have a bias. I can't, I can try all I want, but I have a bias. But I feel like, when when I'm like uh, under the influence that I'm completely unbiased and by bias you mean like taking that perspective of this happened to me mm -hmm. um, so you can and depending on the memory that can be you know a victim role mm -hmm. or um, justification of right. some sort yeah it's any, not my fault yeah exactly and that's that's primarily just because the memory is from your perspective right mm -hmm. but these the this molecule in particular with the mushrooms kind of pulls you out of yourself for a little bit and just gives you uh, an objective observer's point of view. Yeah. So you can see it without any bias. Yeah. Okay. And, and I like to think that I'm pretty objective, but you're, you're, we always have some sort of you know, subjective bias to what we do. I feel like it's really, really hard to just be completely objective on things that happen to you personally that affect you emotionally. And so you say you want to get over it, but you, you can't because you're still holding on to something where you need to look at it from a completely different perspective and I have never been able to do something. And like I said, completely unintentional. And then it hits you and you're just kind of like, oh, mm -hmm. no way. Okay. 
So now I feel completely different about this and I'm able to empathize in a different way with a different perspective or something. And, and I know I'm talking real generally right here, but you know, it, it happens. It happens with stuff. It happens with like having fights because, you know, I, I feel like I've gone through, you know, maybe like two or three months worth of crazy stuff that's happened in my life in a couple of hours, you know, because I'm, I'm in my head and I'm just working through it all. Mm-hmm. So it's real, it's real interesting. And it's almost in like a, when I get done the next day, I feel, I feel like a weight's lifted. There's right. less stress. You like know? you, like you cleaned, you cleaned something out. Mm-hmm. Like there was a, you know, if you can think of like your mind or your brain as like this house with a bunch of different rooms and certain rooms have things that we don't like to look at, you know, in everyday life because they're too painful or they're, um, you know, they cause resentment or something. So we just leave that door shut in our house, in our mind. But these molecules, again, you know, bring you in this outsider's view of the house, maybe from above, and you get to open up all those doors and see them from different angles. Uh, in, in psychedelic therapies, we call that uh, reprocessing. Mm-hmm. So bringing up things from the past, like this memory that you had of someone when you were five and, and it upset you, and bringing that back up, and then letting go of that ego, the part of yourself that says this happened to me and this is why I feel negatively about that, letting that go and being able to reprocess it and see the event happen again just the way it did but have a different perspective on it and, and create different meaning for it mm-hmm. so that when you do wake up the next day from the, from the journey, um, you have a totally different understanding of what happened, why it happened, how it affected you, and it no longer carries like this negative power over you or or your experience because we do we carry that stuff for a long time mm-hmm. like i remember i you know before i got sober i can i could clearly remember times from kindergarten first grade second grade when i was being bullied or a girl would say something mean to me or um you know breakups or whatever yeah. you know and that stuff would would weigh on me to the point that it would lead partially to my substance abuse back in the day. Um, but for me, before I even found the therapeutic use of any of these uh, substances, um, I went through AA and the 12 steps. And for me, um, that really helped me examine myself in a way that was different. I got to view it in a different light, like you said. And so for me at that time, um, when when you do a fourth step, you write down every single thing you can remember, every way you were ever harmed by anybody, all the way back to as you can, far back as you remember. So I had memories from like when I was two or three of people, you know, neglecting me or, or locking me in a car or, and me crying and all these things, um, they weigh on you still subconsciously. Uh, and you put it all out in a notebook and you, you put it all out on the table and you share these things with someone else, uh, a sponsor. And then, you know, you feel the same way. Like you just, we're able to reprocess it, see it in a different way now that you're older and let it go, yeah. you know, and wake up the next day feeling much lighter. And yeah. that was the experience I had going through the 12 steps. And again, with psychedelic therapy work, um, with a variety of different medicines, um, it feels the same way. And it, it almost works on things that you have trouble even, even, uh, knowing that are there. Yeah. You know? Something super repressed, you know? Right. Um, I even had my most recent one was, it was, during finals last semester. Um, I was probably Thursday the week before finals and I was just kind of stressed out. I just needed to chill. So I had some shrooms and I sat down there and took them. And in that time, I thought about everything that I had to do in the last, in the next 10 days, everything, all of it. And I had a mini freak out, right? And then I had the freak out. And then uh, in the same span, in the same, you know, in the same session, I uh, 
went back over everything that I had to do and reprocessed it right then and said, well, now that I know that I have all these things to do, how I'm going to go about accomplishing this stuff. And it helped, it helped me organize everything too. And it was able for me because I was, I was really stressed and I had stats exam that I passed with like a 74 of the class, lowest grade I've made in college so far, but I don't care. I passed <laughs> stats, you know what I mean? And, um, you know, and these were things that I thought I wasn't going to be able to handle this. I, you know, I might as well just quit now because at that point I was at one of those times where, you know, you either keep going or you just stop, you know, mm -hmm. and your mind's kind of telling you, I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if I'm going to make it through this next week. And for some reason, you know, I just did that and it really, it really was a nice stress reliever. It put things in once again, a different perspective and one that I was able to understand process and it motivated me to mm -hmm. be successful. And I finished the semester with a three eight. Nice, you know. So that's cool. Nice, yeah. I really like. Uh, for me, it's almost like um, I like to think of you know, with the different shamans I've worked with and stuff. They all talk about these different medicines having their own spirit, right? They have their own energy, their own presence, um, and that presence, that spirit that they have, um, is sort of like <clears throat> the way I think of it is sort of like. A puppeteer, like someone who controls a marionette, mm -hmm. and we are the are the puppet underneath. Um, and so you take these medicines, and in subtle ways or in drastic ways, the puppeteer sort of rearranges or puts things, uh, motions together, and and puts actions together to start making change in your mind and out in out in your uh, physical universe and your physical presence. And um, yeah, I just find that fascinating that. That uh, we, you know, with trust and with respect, we, you know, the goal is to hand over the reins to these these medicines, and then they, in turn, do all this psychic work on us with very little effort on our part. Mm -mm, right, just along for the ride, essentially. Yeah, go along for the ride. I mean, you can enhance your ability in in those um, mental spaces through like mindfulness training, uh, meditation practice. All these things will help you navigate the spaces and help you uh, maintain focus and attention so you're not just kind of like drifting off into um, the novelty of, of you know the walls melting and stuff like that yeah. um, but instead staying focused on you know I want to stay focused on this memory and I want to work through this memory and I want to do some good so that I have some growth from this experience um, mm -hmm. I love that about the medicines that uh, there's very little work that needs to be done on our part other than uh so making we making sure that we we stay in it and try and let go as much as possible. Yeah, trust it. You got to trust it. Yeah. Because I've I've been with people that had you know would have a bad had bad session or something and then you, and then after it you ask them you talk to them well what happened what you know why why was it that way, and they said they just didn't feel they didn't they just didn't trust it they were too unsure they weren't they were you know anxious going into it and mm -hmm. and uh, it's. It's really unfortunate because a lot, a lot of those people, you know, that I've noticed don't really want to try it again. They're real apprehensive about it because they don't trust themselves enough to just let go. Mm -hmm. you know? And I wonder, I wonder if that's a problem, you know, when it comes to that. Because me, I've always been pretty, pretty trusting with stuff like this. I just, I don't know. My parents didn't teach it to me. I just grew up with, you know. I think there's something more to it for sure. Mm -hmm. So uh, I'm pretty excited. You know, they're legalizing it. So. Uh, or decriminalizing. Oh, is that what they're doing? Yep. Okay. Yeah, so in Denver, um, it's on the ballot for May, I believe, is when the vote is, early May, to decriminalize uh, psilocybin mushrooms. I think it might just be in Denver County, but if it passes there, obviously in our capital, it should 
uh, spread like wildfire. But mm-hmm. um, I think that's going to be a great thing moving forward. I mean, uh, Dr. David Nutt uh, and his research team in London, I mean, and the listeners can look this up too if you want. Uh, his his research is really famous, and he found that psilocybin mushrooms are actually um, one of the least toxic substances on the entire planet. Um, even less toxic than water, I believe. Oh, wow. Yeah. This day and age, huh? Yes. It's, it's pretty pretty interesting stuff, and um, I think it would be a great step forward um, in lessening, loosening the reins a little bit and allowing the, the culture and the people of the United States to be able to explore themselves, explore their own consciousness, explore their inner world, and really give them a medicine or a... a a doorway that's easier to walk through than maybe say going to uh, traditional psychotherapy and, and pouring your guts out to a total stranger. You know, mm-hmm. that's really hard for some people. Mm-hmm. Um, so you, ha- you and me as a therapist, you know, I have my own biases towards that. I think everybody should be in therapy. Mm-hmm. I'm in therapy mm-hmm. and I love it. Um, because, uh, getting, gaining that outside perspective from somebody who isn't as biased as me, um, to my own situation gives me so much value and so much, um, positive insight to make change. So, uh, you're also in, Mm -hmm. uh, in therapy yourself. Yeah, I go talk to somebody probably once a week uh, up at CSU. There's a a bunch of facilities, they facilitate it all up there. So, you know, you need any help with anything, you can go and talk to somebody at CSU. It's, it's actually really nice. They, uh, and they force us to get health insurance up there if you don't have health insurance outside of CSU then you have then it's included in your tuition so um with that you know I just went ahead and took that because it's really good insurance and I'm like well it's actually cheaper for me to do it this way than to pay for you know a third party I'm getting better coverage so I'm taking full advantage of it for Mm -hmm. sure so what yeah what what has your experience been so far like in, in therapy like uh has it been useful has it been interesting yeah it's been interesting useful um talk about my relationships and just just kind of how i'm feeling it's almost like somebody that i can vent to about anything that's bothering me and i can sound like a child if i need to sound like a child or anything and then you know always come back to come back to who i really am and say okay thanks i just needed to get this out but it, it's just been therapeutic almost you know because i can go on when like say i'm having a bad day or i've I've had some issues with, uh, with you know, my significant other recently, and I thought I was going crazy. I thought I was just absolutely losing my mind. So I went and talked to somebody about it, and, uh, you know, it just, it's, it's a natural thing. You know, it's what it, they were telling me was just making me feel like, you know, what I was going through wasn't, it's not bad. It's just, it just happens. Mm-hmm. And it's okay to feel this way, and this is how you can help process it, you know, and just... It's just been a real positive experience mm-hmm. for me, honestly. The fact that they're right there, you know. Yeah, and uh, yeah, the availability is super important. Um, and before we started the podcast, you said that uh, you know you loved going to therapy because they told you that you didn't have that it was totally normal for you to uh, have thoughts that everybody else is crazy. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I was wondering if you could pick that apart a little bit and tell because I think I have thoughts like that too. Like, especially being a therapist, you know, um, I don't. I'd say 80 or 90% of my clients are not people who uh, are well-balanced. You know, they're not people who have, who are totally squared away with their mental health. They're usually people who have serious issues mm-hmm. uh, with their mental health and, and are seeking help. And so, um, you know, it's, yeah. Anyway, you, you, <laughs> I want you to, you to talk about your experience in there and, and thinking uh, about that. A perfect, I guess, example for me would be traffic when you're driving in traffic. Sure. And, and so when I'm driving in traffic, I'm not looking at my phone. I drive a stick 
So I'm more engaged than the average person. And I do like to say, yes, I drive a manual. Oh, yeah, manual, you know manuals unite. I got one of those too. <laughs> so it, uh, you know, it makes you a more engaged driver. You're paying attention to what's going on. You're paying attention to how close somebody is behind you when you're on a hill. You know, you have all of these things going on. And when I'm driving, is probably the only time when I'm watching other people instead of being stuck in my own mind. And I watch people and the decisions that they make when they're out on the roads. And it's like, what are you doing? And it's all the time. It's all the time. And to me, that's like the best reference of why I can, you know, say, is the rest of the world crazy? Because you look at how many cars are on the road and every person is inside their own bubble, mm -hmm. their own little bubble where they don't even have to acknowledge that they almost just killed you right there. They can just act like everything's fine and look down at their phone and do whatever. And, you know, I just feel like... Uh, when I say that people are crazy, they don't want to be held. They don't want to be held accountable for, who you know, what really happens, what's really going on, and um, they don't even have to really, you know, acknowledge it. Yeah. Especially in you know in a traffic situation like that. So um, I don't know. I just maybe you know maybe it's me. Maybe that's my ego saying you know oh I'm not crazy and everyone else is, but. You know, when you hear people that are college students, they should be great, grateful that they're college students, that they're in college, that they're doing something that, you know, what, five billion people can't do or more or right. something like that. They have a salty attitude about it. Like, oh, my God, I have to do this. It's like, what are you, crazy? Have mm -hmm. you ever shoveled asphalt for six weeks, 12 hours a day? Mm -hmm. No. So you just, you know, like, what? Sure. What's going on? I guess it's a perspective thing, you know? Yeah, and I think... Um a lot of people act that way probably because, you know, they lack the experience in other fields like that, right? Mm -hmm. Like, it sounds like you have shoveled asphalt, right? <laughs> yes. And I, you know, I have worked construction. I've worked jobs that kill my back when I was 18 or 19 years old. You know, I have that experience, and so I can definitely be more grateful for the opportunity than I'm being given to go back to school, you know, mm -hmm. whereas some of these kids these days um, have never had a job. And if they have had a job, most of them are not uh, serious manual labor. Mm -mm. Um, so it might have been, you know, Starbucks or something easier. And I'm not saying that that's their fault, but maybe it's more of a, a fault of um, society in a way that we don't better prepare people and, and uh, show them the full spectrum of, mm -hmm. of work and what it takes to make a living out, that's out there. Yeah, um, I, I think everybody I, should have to be a server or... Yeah, or, or everyone should have to be uh, work construction uh, or be on a road crew for a summer or something just so that they not only get back to the infrastructure of the community in that way, but they also sort of pay their dues and and understand that, yeah, going to school is, is a, it's a yeah, it's a privilege, right? Yeah. Um, that's something that, uh, you know, early in my sobriety, there were periods of time when I'd wake up in the morning and just be bitter, you know, like, why do I have to leave this this sober life? It's so uh, less fun than drinking every night and stuff. Like, but my sponsor would, you know, almost like give me a psychic slap across the face or backhand, and he would say, "No, I want you to not tell yourself all the negative things going on, but instead tell yourself how how um, grateful you are." that you get the opportunity to go to work, that you get the opportunity to have a job, to make a living, to pay your bills. Stop complaining about your bills. Just be grateful that you have bills to pay for mm -hmm. because some people don't. Some people are on the street. Uh, some people wish that they could make a living and uh, just barely get by paycheck to paycheck. Mm -hmm. You know, um, And the more grateful that I am, the more 
the universe gives me to be grateful for, mm -hmm. you know, it's just weird how that works. And the more I complain about things, the more the universe gives me to complain about, yeah. you know, it's almost like what I you create it. Yeah, exactly. I'm yeah. creating it. Mm -hmm. And I, I take that too into perspective with uh, mm -hmm. something that once again is because I've done some changing. And so I, I have this, uh, I'm not very like, uh, say religious, I'm a spiritual guy. Um, but I am taking, taking just the time to say thank you, mm -hmm. just to thank you. Whatever it is, I, I want to thank you for this, thank you for that, instead of saying, oh, what the heck, you know, or please, can I have something? Just thank you for the things that I do have. Mm -hmm. Just this display of gratitude to just, I guess, life in general, you know, and it's, it's helped a whole lot in that regard. We're being positive about it, mm -hmm. appreciating the stuff that you have, like appreciating the fact that I was able to get through a yellow light. You know what I mean? Instead mm -hmm. of being stuck for another minute and a half, because there's no telling what could have happened. You know, you'd be late for work or just the little things like that. And I mean, I, you know, I guess I'm a good example of when you, when you do that with the little things that it starts compounding and everything, your whole, the whole aspect, all of the aspects of your life become, you know, you're thinking positively about it instead mm -hmm. of you know, the negative aspects of what's going on. Yeah. And, you know, gratitude doesn't cost anything. And gratitude is something that's relatively simple enough for people. The, just the every everyday, every average, everyday person uh, can access, you know. Um, it's as simple as, you know, for my clients, I'll suggest every night before bed, pull out a little notebook and write down five things you're grateful for. And they're like, I don't know if I can do that. Like, I can't even think of a single thing that I'm grateful for. Well, start really basic, right? Are you grateful that you can breathe oxygen? Are you grateful that you have the use of your legs? You know, a lot of people don't. Yeah. Are you grateful that you have a roof over your head, you know, and blankets to keep you warm, especially on a day like this, right? Yeah. With six inches of snow on the ground and another 12 anticipated. Yeah, the weekend is going to be awesome. Right. So, Love this weather. Yeah, me too. <laughs> so, you know, simple gratitude pro practices are um, easily accessible and really beneficial. They have a lot of power to them. Yeah. You know, and I love that you say thank you, you know, to to everything. Yeah. Um, Thanks for having me here. Man. Yeah, of it's, course. It's awesome. <laughs> um, I, I love saying thank you for like, you know, meals and food and my dogs and my wife and all that stuff. Um, but also, you know, being grateful that I have an opportunity to say thank you for those things. Yeah, that's you a know? big one. Yeah, a I used to don't. tell Z thank you every night after uh, I'd get home from, you know, training and everything. I would, I would text him and say, hey, thanks, man, every night, because it, it meant a lot to me. I felt so centered. I felt so good about that, you know, mm -hmm. and I showed a lot of gratification. And even though, you know, I did end up getting injured because of it, um, I still pulled so much, you know, out of, out of uh, you know, what I, what I learned doing the jujitsu that I was doing um, and about gratitude there, too, because, you know, that stuff is, uh, that's different, man. What do you mean? Like, uh, just, just the, the camaraderie the brother mm. you know the the sportsmanship and the brotherhood that's that's involved in it you know because you're grateful like say are you ever grateful that somebody just knocked you out that just choked you out because you learned something from that right i try to be grateful in those moments yeah. right I mean, i'm grateful because i've got a five minute buzz now right <laughs> but um you know it's because when you're when you're there doing something like that you're there to get better and when you're being challenged you should be grateful for that challenge because it's pushing you. You're getting better because you are being challenged. You know, you're not playing a, a game on easy. Right. You know, you're wrestling with Joe Miles who wants to choke you out while he's singing uh, Stairway to Heaven, you know, mm -hmm. so it's... Yeah, totally. And I think that uh, that idea translates to everyday life too, mm -hmm. you know. Very much um, so. It's, 
it's relatively easy, like I said, to be grateful for good things. But the real practice and I think the, the real um, breakthrough comes when you can be grateful for challenging things. When you can be grateful, when, you know, if you get fired from your job and you can, uh, after, you know, after the initial burst of anger and, and frustration, then you can turn around and say, well, I'm grateful that that happened because the universe is opening me up for something bigger and better. Mm-hmm. Or I'm grateful for that, you know, finding, um, finding gratitude for things that are challenging and difficult because they provide opportunities for growth. Mm-hmm. I think that is really uh, one of the pinnacles of that practice. Yeah, there's a documentary series on Netflix now called Losers. Uh, we just started watching a couple yeah, episodes I last just, night. I've just finished it. It's a, a perfect example of what you're talking about, with mm-hmm. growth from that sort of, that sort of challenge. Um, good, really, really good stuff there. So yeah, let me know what you think when you finish it. Cool. Yeah, I think we just watched the boxing episode. Um, and it's interesting, you know, everybody loves the underdog story and that's what I like most about these that show is that it you know it shows um, you know people that maybe didn't ever you know in the boxing one he didn't he never intended to be a professional boxer mm-hmm. his dad just kind of forced them into it and um, and he miraculously uh, and you know I think he was kind of hinting that he thought it was a fluke but became a heavyweight champion of the world mm-hmm. during a time when the heavyweight division of the boxing cha- uh, boxing was huge and you know Mike biggest, Tyson yeah, yeah. And, and Tommy Morrison yep and then uh, he became this champion and then lost it the very next fight and um, you know but he talked so highly about how those challenges and being knocked out in front of thousands of people and suffering some of the biggest embarrassments of his life turned him into who he is now and now he's going around and he helps so many people um, because of his experience you know he's written articles about uh, you know the the science of the knockout or Mm -hmm. or something like that I think was the title of it he said yeah just like a three-page thing one of his first ones or something yeah and uh, yeah, he got, he went through and did a whole bunch of stuff. Is you know training boxing and just uh, kind of like a life coach. So mm-hmm. it's interesting how somebody can, who can hit rock bottom can go so much higher when they do. You know, yeah. Not that I, you have to, to get no. there, but <laughs> no. But I think everybody has that potential. You know, for for people out there who are even listening to this right now, you know, they may be going through really tough times in their life and maybe feeling like there's no way to turn it around or there's no way out of this hole that they've dug themselves into or maybe they feel like the world has caused this situation that they can't seem to get out of. But I believe that everybody, you know, has the potential to to be that underdog story, you know. As long as you rewrite the script of your life and you can see your situation from a, like you said, a different perspective, a positive lens, you know, um, if you're open to those ideas and you, you work at finding that perspective, you will find it and you will find your way out of whatever situation you're in. Mm-hmm. You know, the Buddhists would say, uh, just like you said, you know, um, if something comes into existence, it just by its nature has to become extinct, right? Everything mm-hmm. has to become extinct, just like situations too. Yep. Just because a situation happened, that means that it also has to come to an end. Yeah, this too shall pass, right? Right, exactly. And people get so stuck in um, circumstances feeling like it's it's never going to end. This is going to be this, the status of my life forever, you know, uh, without giving much, much weight to the bigger picture and um, looking at whatever they're going through that's challenging as an opportunity to get better, an opportunity to grow and mm-hmm. to choose a different path. Yeah, that's why I moved out to Colorado from Georgia. 
was because I wanted to grow, I wanted to be bigger, and I felt like the town that I grew up in there, there was, you know, for, there was really nothing else for me there. Find a local, you know, wife, raise a couple of kids, and just find a local job, and then that's it. Now, that's fine for a lot of people, but I, that wasn't what I wanted. And I see a lot of people that I graduated high school with that are, did exactly that, and you ask them if they're happy, and they would more say along the lines of they're complacent, mm. you know. And you can't judge them for that or anything, but at the same time, you, you, if you asked them when they were 19, is this really what you want, you know, they would probably say no. I thought that some, something different would happen here. Um, and then you see a lot of people turn, I've seen a lot of people turn to alcoholism or, or drugs or something back home because they, they never took the chance to grow and go away from something that they're comfortable with, which was their hometown. Mm. You know, so I wonder if there's a little relativity in there with that, because I see, you know, like uh, my cousins and stuff that uh, live back home, they uh, seem to be stuck in a rut that I can't get out of this. You know, this mm -hmm. is just the way life is. And it's like, it's not. Look at me. Mm -hmm. You know, look at what I did, you know. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, I wonder. So you're from Savannah? Mm -hmm. Yeah, a little uh, place called Statesboro, but more it's so rural down there that you just kind of claim the closest town. I live like 25 miles away from you know, Statesboro, but that's where I'm from. How many people in your town? Uh, probably at the time that I left, it was about as big as Fort Collins, so probably like 130,000. And okay. there's a school there, University of Georgia Southern, which is about the same size as CSU, more like a business IT type school, though. Okay. Um, Does it feel the same? Um, so you're shaking your head. No, it doesn't no, feel the same as Fort Collins. Like this. Okay. Yeah, nothing. So what's what's the? I've never been down south. That's one part of the country I've actually never visited. Mm -hmm. um, what, but what is the culture like? Like I hear all these all the stereotypes about the culture down in the South, right? Um, I mean, the stereotypes are there for a reason. They definitely do exist, um, you know. And and it's hard for me to say honestly because I'm definitely biased about it, yeah. which is one of the reasons why I left, you know. But I mean, you say you're out here, you have a lot of people that are willing to ride their bikes around. They don't own a car or something like that. Well, back back in Georgia, it's I mean, unless it's nice, you really can't in the summertime because you'll die because it's 120 degrees outside, oh. you know, so much humidity. Um, but as far as the people, it's um, like from Fort Collins to where I'm from, the diversity is completely different as far as racial and ethnic diversity. How so? Uh, there's, a, there's a lot more Caucasians in Fort Collins than okay. where I'm from. I went to like a predominantly black high school. So, you know, I'm used to seeing, you know, uh, just, I guess, more diversity. And with that comes different, a different culture, you know, because... You know, people are just different in that aspect. And when you come out here, you see things are things are a little slower in Fort Collins than, than they are back east. Like slower paced? Mm -hmm. Even though the speed limits are higher, things seem to just be a, be a little slower paced. People seem to be paying more attention to just more self-conscious and more conscious about what's going on around them. Even though I still think traffic, they're crazy or whatever, <laughs> um, it's, it's a lot better than, like, say, Atlanta traffic. Yeah, you know, which is probably some of the worst I've, I've ever been to, and I've been stuck in LA. So yeah, <laughs> but um, I don't know. It's, there's a lot more religion, you know, and there's a lot of religion like Christianity's out here pretty far, but back home it's it's uh, it's real. Right, like Georgia's part of the Bible Belt, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you know, and I don't know much about what the Bible Belt all entails, but you know, from the word or from the name, it sounds like you know heavy. Um, Catholic or Christian influence. Mm -hmm. um, not, I guess not too much Catholic that I know of, but more like Baptist and, Baptist, and okay. uh, Methodist. So, but a lot of um, Western 
religion mm -hmm. down there. Oh yeah. Yeah, and um, and, and real uh, like you know churches are old, and the churches run a lot of things too. Like so, you have really small churches. Say the church that I went to was a United Methodist Church, and there were maybe thirteen people, twenty-five on a good day. You know, we had pews from eighteen ninety wow. that were hard as a rock, pieces of wood that you sat in for an hour and a half, and you're just like, what? Yeah, when can I get out of here? Yeah, God hates me. These pews are <laughs> uncomfortable, right? You know, um, but um, and we did that until I was like eight years old, and then I asked my parents a question, and I can't exactly remember the question, but ever since I asked them that question. They were like, you know, I guess we don't have to really do the church thing anymore. Hmm. And that was it, you know. Um, they never really, because before that it was expected. Yeah. It was expected. And my grandfather would want me to go. So I definitely have some teachings from that. But I, I look at it objectively because, you know, the Christian religion has a lot of good, uh, a lot of good messages out there. But unfortunately, human beings have really tainted you know what it's supposed to be about i think yeah so. as with most um formal religions yeah yeah so you said that, it up. yeah but you said down south the churches have a lot more power yeah so like like up here like uh i don't go to a formal church um but that you know i, I drive around town and i see these big massive churches with you know yeah hundreds of people in their congregation and then i see little tiny churches too mm -hmm. churches literally uh every few blocks mm -hmm. um but i don't see the uh i guess the the power that the church might have in this community um as much as you're describing that it might in georgia uh, in statesboro there's this church called excuse me, First Baptist Church, and they have uh, probably a third of the town goes to this church, huge, huge church. And so they, some of their city board members, you know, committee members, all of these people are members of the church. So if the church believes that something shouldn't be passed inside the county, then they start petitioning for it and they start saying for it and it doesn't happen. It's a dry county because of the church. Mm. And it's a county that has a university like CSU and the county lines we have to drive to the county lines to get liquor or we can go to a couple of bars in town but the prices are you know spiked up but you go to the liquor store which is at the county line which is about 30 minutes away and you pay double for what you would if you drove another 30 minutes into the middle of the other county mm. so we're you know economically we're losing out on a whole lot of money because we're a dry county um and a lot of businesses don't bring their you know bring bring their uh business there because of it and it literally is because this one church you know, would feel like, oh, well, we don't want this. We don't want that to happen here. We we feel like we're, you know, this shouldn't. Wow. And you see instances like that because the church has such high influence, you know, that it's still kind of like how it was 100 years ago. Yeah, and that's unfortunate because, you know, we all know growing up in this country that church and state are supposed to be separate, right? Mm -hmm. And it shouldn't have that sort of lobbying potential or, mm -hmm. or power over the vote, you know, in whatever area that is. Yeah. That's really unfortunate. Um, it, it's almost, it feels like really nasty when you when you tell me about that it feels like the church uh in some areas like this are limiting um freedom of expression and freedom of speech and freedom of um businesses to come in and freedom of commerce and all these all these uh rights that we're, we're told were given and it's sort of very restrictive almost like mm -hmm. they're they're intentionally putting up a barrier or a bubble around them yeah only letting in the people that they they approve of it's it is interesting too because i really i feel that they have good intentions that they're not trying to do it in a bad way but i also feel like that the ego just it, they can't see past it you know so much and, more conservative down there yeah well yeah. yeah a lot more conservative unless well once again it has to do with population density 
because you, you, you find that Atlanta is very, I guess you would say, democratic, hmm. whereas the most of the rest of Georgia is going to be very um, Republican. Yeah, I guess you would, you would you could say the same thing about a lot of areas in, like, Texas, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, Texas, like, Colorado is probably the same yeah. way. Denver is going to be real liberal. Yeah. Um, you know? Where, and, and it's true because, you know, even, even I, okay, I went, you know, the high school that I went to, there, there were black dudes that would walk around with rebel flag shirts on, hmm. you know, and to them it wasn't, it wasn't hate. So you see all of these, these uh, problems that people are having with Confederate, you know, statues and right. all of this stuff. And there really is a bipolarization of how people feel about it. And the people that feel positively about it are people that are from the South that brought up in that, in that tradition, you know. Hmm. And although a lot of what was going on is horrible, absolutely horrible, slavery is mm-hmm. absolutely horrible in any way, shape, or form, um, a lot of people don't appreciate the fact that that is how we got to where we are. Right. It's a part of the history. And yeah. to deny, you know, that's so frustrating to me when I read, like, history books and it totally denies, you know, you know influences like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, slavery might take up four or five pages in a history book when mm-hmm. really, you know, it's a huge part of our history for hundreds of years and um and even before that with other yeah. civilizations yeah totally it's, and it's not something that we should hide no all, so. we we should not just be telling the positive things that happen in history but should you know a lot of bad stuff happen too but we learn from those things and that helped us become who we are as a country today and if we forget those things if we forget about some of the horrendous things that have happened there, then we're doomed to repeat them. Mm-hmm. You know, I agree with that. Yeah, uh, I read it's a scary. Yeah, I read a great book called uh, "The Lies My Teacher Told Me," and it goes through all the all the common textbooks. This guy did a search of all the history books that are taught in middle school and high school, and um, you know, he breaks them down by sections of history and, and talks about all the things that are contained in the book, and then like all the things that are left out of the books and that's like 80% of the content is stuff that's left out um, you know stories from the not just the victors you know because victors tell the history yeah, but, the but stories, right yeah. but stories from the people from the victims um, yeah. stories about you know Native Americans being rolled over uh, you know in our country and other things as well mm-hmm. um, so I love that there are people out there fighting for true history but it's certainly not the not the common not the norm, right? Mm-hmm. And they don't, they don't even talk. I, uh, a buddy of mine showed me that uh, a Canada, Canadian history book doesn't even talk about uh, what the what United States did to the Native Americans. It says that they gave them land and helped them move or that, something like oh, that. You know, and I've I've got Native blood. I'm like I'm I have enough Native American blood in me to claim it. I'm not going to because you know I'm a white guy. So. Sure. But. Um, you know, so I know I've learned my grandmother looked like a Native American. She talked to me about all of this stuff mm-hmm. about, you know, what happened. And we, so I, I can identify with with this. And it really it really is upsetting to know that something that because that's horrible. That's like as bad as, you know, the, the war, World War Two. And um, we're writing it out of history books. Mm-hmm. You know, that people do horrible things. We do horrible things. We need to learn from this because we yeah. Do it again. I hope more people hear hear what we're talking about and become more interested in finding out, you know, the broader view of what happened. Um, but that being said, uh, we'll, we'll leave you audience there, as sort of a cliffhanger, um, into the next section of the podcast. Um, but we're going to take a quick commercial break, so please stick with us, and uh, we'll continue the conversation with John Hendricks here in a minute. 
All right, we're back with John Hendricks after our quick commercial break from our sponsors. Um, so, John, we were talking about the South and your origins in Georgia and, um, you know, your migration out here to uh, Fort Collins. It sounds like you, you're happy with your choice oh, yeah. <laughs> coming Most out here. Um, <laughs> I miss uh, my family. I miss the farm that I grew up on and all of that stuff. But I also think that uh, growing up out there, is part of the reason why I'm doing what I'm trying to do today because I already have such a, a value for you know the natural world and stuff like that that I can actually give back to it instead of trying to just take from it. You know? Yeah, and you talk about missing family and what comes up to my head when you mention the word family. Anytime I hear the word family, of course I think of my biological family, mm-hmm. but I also think of my jujitsu family. You yeah. know, and we were talking before about you know. Jiu-Jitsu is much more than a sport or a discipline or a practice or an art, but um, it's a community, you know, and it is a family. You, you create these family bonds with other people that you train with um, that, for me anyway, um, have been just as important as biological family bonds, um, sometimes even more powerful um, because uh, my fam- most of my family lives away from Fort Collins and most of my teammates live in this area. So, yeah. you know, they help me move. They, you know, I go to them with, with stresses and with problems and with other things that I might go to family with. But for me, um, jiu-jitsu has been so much more than that. And I know that you, you, you know, when I first started training at Z's, you were there. You were already there training doing jiu-jitsu and MMA, and we trained together for a while, and then um, you had a catastrophic knee injury. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was an ACL tear, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then... um, Kept training for like a year with it and just kept getting worse. Right. And then, but eventually you needed surgery. Mm -hmm. Uh, So you got the surgery, and then, uh, you know, you'd stop in every once in a while, um, but really kind of fell off as far as um, your jiu-jitsu training and and being a part of this thing that was really valuable to you. I'd love to hear your, you know, your journey through that whole thing because I've been through a number of knee surgeries. I've had, uh, I think, seven knee surgeries. Um, That's tough. (laughs) Yeah, seven knee surgeries, um, bicep reattached. Mm -hmm. You know, um, you know, surgeries on my hands, things like that. And I keep coming back to it because I love it so much. Mm -hmm. And um, that's part of the reason why I got into sport and performance psychology is because there's this really uh, robust um, section of the sports psychology literature that talks about psychological rehabilitation from major injuries. So everyone knows about the physical rehabilitation, you know, physical therapy, surgery, um, uh, the Rice method, you know, ice and compression and all these things. But there's a huge component that's um, overlooked a lot of the time, and that's the psychological component of coming back from an injury. And I know I've had to go through it and struggle through a lot of things, and I've talked about some of those things on the podcast, but I've witnessed that in you too and your own psychological comeback. Um, And so maybe you could could talk about that a little bit from your perspective. Um, Well, (coughs) I remember when the injury happened, I was, we were just working on takedowns and we're, you know, kind of moving at three-quarter speed. And I took, a, I guess I took a little too short of a step and my heel was placed. My heel was firm down when I went to pivot and I just heard a pop and my, you know, I fell, I fell down and looked at Z and he was just like, you know, it's cool, it's cool, what's going on, you're fine. Because, you know, we didn't know if it was a real injury or not. And then I would keep training and then um, something would happen and my knee would completely shift and it would just, it would, you know, come loose and I'd fall down in excruciating pain. And I'd get back up, put myself together. I'd maybe stop training for the day, 
you know, or just get on something that's a little less, you know, stressful for me because we didn't know what was going on. And after a while of just continually doing that, it started tearing my meniscus. Um, it started, I started having no confidence in my ability to do a takedown, to defend a takedown, to just really be able to, to operate, you know, at 100% or even 50% without injuring myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and that started really playing a big role on me, you know, as, I, as I'm falling down. And then finally I was able to set up and get knee surgery. Um, and it costs like around 17 grand to do all of this work um, because of the insurance that I had and everything. And uh, the rehabilitation wasn't wasn't so bad, like physically, but going through all of that um, and the pain that you had to go through and not being able to walk for a month. And then I had to ask myself, you know, do I love this sport enough to sacrifice my whole body for it? Um, and the answer was yes, I still do. I still love it. But am I, am I strong enough? I had so much doubt about it. Am mm-hmm. I strong enough to go through this again? Because I've already gone through it once. And I went through it pretty well, but do I want to go through this again? Yeah. Can I afford to go through this again? Mm-hmm. And that might have been the biggest thing at the time for me was, you know, if I blow my knee out again or another one, I can't fix it this time. This was like, you know, I'm, I'm not going to be able to do this. So do, do I continue to go through or do I need to worry about, you know, what's going on in the rest of my life? And if I'm going to be able to provide for myself because... You know, if I'm doing a hobby, I can't freaking walk anymore because of it. So mm-hmm. when you weigh all of that stuff, it really kind of comes down to like um, just, you know, do I feel like I have the self-efficacy to to continue to do this and function in everything else that I'm doing? Yeah, so really it was, you know, that's a, uh, a huge linchpin moment that really just kind of sat you down literally and figuratively yeah. and said, you know, you need to do an assessment of all your resources, mm-hmm. your financial resources for the future, your mental and emotional resources. You know, can you make it through this thing again? Mm-hmm. Your physical resources, right? Yeah, your physical resources. Like, uh, will you be able to function at uh, um, close, to, cl- as close as possible to a hundred percent again? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, in my experience, we're never quite the same after an injury. Uh, no matter how much we want to get back to our old self, we can't. Yeah. Uh, so it, it takes some level of acceptance that this is the new me and I can push it to 100% okay. with my new body, yeah. but it's not going to be the same. It's not going to be the same as 100% with a fresh knee. Mm-hmm. Um, but with that same attitude, what I found is that I've been able to push myself in, in ways that uh, I couldn't before and superseded my performance in other areas yeah. because I haven't been able to focus on you know, knee stuff or whatever. Okay. So, yeah, I love what you said. It, it really made you sit down and assess your resources. Like, is this worth it? Mm-hmm. You know, is this, is this worth um, all the pain and struggle? And I know for me, um, that was an easy yes. Mm-hmm. You know, when that happened to me, and it's happened numerous times, like I said, seven knee surgeries. Uh, I know people who have been in this sport and had one surgery and they forever quit. Mm-hmm. Um, but for me, the value that I get from jujitsu um, way outweighs any of the physical damage that I take. And yeah, it's painful. And yeah, it's a pain in the ass to have to go upstairs for a month and hobble around with crutches. And yeah, that sucks. You know? And I'm constantly in a state of soreness and some injury going on. But mm-hmm. like I said, the benefits that I gain from it go far beyond just the technicals of the sport. Mm-hmm. right? So we do gain physical proficiency in um, pretty much uh, murder techniques, you know? Uh, What do we call it? Uh, It's uh, simulated murder um, or um, 
extreme cuddling or yeah or um learning (laughs) learning (laughs) learning how to um force people into sleep studies or you know like that by choking them out so we have all these funny (laughs) things that we we call jujitsu so we get the technical stuff and it gives us confidence walking around the streets knowing that we can handle ourselves and giving us things like better body awareness better balance uh, better cardiovascular health better muscular health better flexibility all these physical things but it also, you know, has been shown to reduce depression, mm-hmm. reduce anxiety, uh, reduce PTSD, reduce, um, you know, phobias like social phobias or claustrophobias, um, you know, help veterans uh, reintegrate back into society. Um, it provides a community, mm-hmm. right? When I think a lot of people are really disconnected from their own communities these days, you yeah. know, we're, we're, we keep ourselves locked up in our own houses and maybe we'll go to the grocery store for an hour and then we're straight back to our house. Mm-hmm. Or maybe we'll go to the park uh, and try and avoid people at the park and then come back to our house. Yeah, I think people are struggling with social identity a lot, you know, because the, like, once again, going back to politics a lot, there's like three or four primary, like prime social identities that everyone has, right? And, and what if you don't fit into these social norms that everyone else is saying that you're, that, you know, everyone else fits into? What do you do? You don't feel accepted. You don't feel like you belong there. So you're not going to go out of your way, you know, to be uncomfortable in that situation. You're going to stay to yourself, you know? Um, and that, you know, that, that's interesting that you say that. And it does definitely, it brings people out of their shells. Yeah. So I think most of society these days are more disconnected from each other than we have been in the past. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, there's an argument to say that we're more connected because of social media and the internet and things like that. Technically but, more connected. Right, technically, mm-hmm. uh, in a technical sense, but less connected you know, at the heart level, I would say, mm-hmm. you know, well, when we, again, we're all yeah. driving around in our own cars, one person in a car and you got your phone with you. You've got right. everything you want to make me happy right in front of you. Right. You don't have to, you don't have to acknowledge or deal with anyone mm-hmm. else. And when we're interacting with each other online, um, you know, it's from the mind level mm-hmm. most of the time. And, um, you know, you don't get to feel the other person's limbic system. Like in this conversation, you know, that I'm having with you right now, face to face, I feel connected to you. You know, if I'm talking to someone on Facebook, I don't feel connected to them in the same way. And so in a way we're more connected, but in a much more important way, we're much more disconnected. Um, and I think jujitsu for me helps me stay connected. Um, not only to, you know, because as human beings, we're social creatures. We have to be connected. It's part of our mental health. Every man is an island. Yeah, and connection doesn't just mean connection to community. Uh, it doesn't just mean connection to other people. But it also, most importantly for me, means connection to myself uh, and who I am, who I believe I am, connection to my values and morals, but connection to um, my spiritual self. Yeah. And jiu-jitsu has become that for me where I can... Um, more than anything, like it's great connecting with our friends on the mat and connecting with friends across the state that I see at tournaments from other gyms and connect, you know, I can walk into a gym in uh, Russia, a jiu-jitsu gym, and they will probably accept me there and mm-hmm. just welcome me on the mat. No problem. Uh, I love that connection. Russell but Bear. Yeah. <laughs> but I love um, really connecting with myself and yeah. really smashing my own ego every single day and learning about my capabilities and learning uh, about my willpower and my mental fortitude and my perseverance and all these character traits that I think a lot of people um, 
they, they don't know much about themselves, no, you know? And jujitsu teaches us a lot about ourselves. And that connectivity has uh, bled into my spiritual life, too. And now I view the mat as like a sanctuary. Yeah. Like I step on there and I'm on a spiritual plane. And it feels so amazing, you know? Yeah. Uh, working with subtle energies um, in that way. I like it. I miss it. I miss it when I think about it. And, you know, I think the biggest thing that, that I was worried about when I stopped going towards the end was I wasn't pushing myself hard because I had realized that I can't, I can't go as, as a hundred percent or even, you know, 70% now when I come back, cause I will be, um, that I can't go as hard as I want to. I can't go for four hours. I want to be able to go for four hours. Like in my head, I can go for four hours. I've got the heart for it, but I, I, you know, I'm, I can't walk the next day, you know, like at all. So I have to put those personal limitations until I get back into it. But I was more worried about, uh, feeling, I felt like I was a tourist, mm. you know, when I'd come into the gym and I'd, you know, hit on the bag a little bit, or I'd do this because of, I'm holding myself back because I'm, you know, trying to get back into it, but I don't want to just jump head first in because I don't want to mm-hmm. re-injure myself or injure anybody else because I'm not, you know, ready yet. Um, that I felt like I, I didn't belong because I wasn't, I, I felt like I was a tourist. Like I was just there to be cool that I was in the in crowd but I'm not actually a part of the team. Yeah. Do I, I know that that's not true. You know what I mean? I know I earn my stripes. I know that I earned my spot there, but that doesn't mean that when I, you know, when that happened and I took the leave of absence, when I came back that I didn't feel, I felt a little displaced, you know, because the faces weren't the same, you know, um, the, the atmosphere wasn't the same just and and that's maybe more of a perspective thing than, than anything else, you know? But uh, I was worried about it. Yeah, and I think you're right. The atmosphere does change. Mm -hmm. But that's the nature of the gym, right? Yeah. I mean, even while you were training there full-time, we see massive turnover, um, new faces. Old faces come back after many years. Yeah, right. Uh, Yeah, it's it's awesome. Um, Yeah, I don't know. The jiu-jitsu gym and, and the training facilities that we put ourselves in are really special places for a lot of reasons. Yeah, it feels like home even even now when I go back in there. I still feel like I belong there, but yeah, I just didn't want people to be like, oh, who the hell is this guy? So my, you know, I guess I was too worried about what other people think, so. I, I think you hit the nail on the head. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's a lot of, you know, ego coming in, wondering how I'm going to be judged and stuff. Um, and it doesn't and, really matter. Yeah, no, not at all. And I know there's other people out there listening right now who are feeling the same way because I know some of my listeners yeah, and it's, it's you, you know who we're talking about, you know, some of you out there in the same place where you feel like you, you may not be able to come back or how am I going to be thought of or judged when I do come back? Dude, just get in there. You know, mm-hmm. my philosophy with jujitsu, um, whether, you know, and I'm in a state of injury right now. Uh, and I've just recently told my team that I have to back off from jujitsu for a little bit in order to let my body heal mm-hmm. and set those limitations because I can't walk the next day, you know, and my injuries just aren't healing because I'm not allowing them the space and time to heal. Um, but for those of you guys out there who are thinking that, you know, what I, what I say, I say, get in there. So get up, suit up and get out there. Go train. Right. Go train. (laughs) Uh, so get your ass to the gym, change your clothes, and step on that mat, and we'll take care of the rest. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't have to worry about being judged. Maybe we'll make a little fun of you, but you're welcome to throw it back our way. It's um, almost expected. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's how we welcome you back to the group, is this, <laughs> this camaraderie, this banter that we have back and forth. And that's how you know that you're really part of the group. And that's how I know that if you came back today, you know, that you'd be welcomed back because... Well, Crazy Carl's at six, right? 
Uh, yeah. 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 So just wait for wait for everyone to start making fun of you and asking you where you've been, man. We all care about you. And we, yeah. we want you back. So that being said, what is what does jujitsu mean to you? You know, you said it's really important to you, but what what sort of value does it bring to your life? Uh, well, a sense of purpose, uh, brotherhood. That because I I guess in most of my life I've been you know been on a baseball team. I've been on a football team. I've played in team sports, but I didn't really feel like we were part of a team. Mm-hmm. It's just a whole bunch of individuals that were we just wore the same color you know and had the same mm-hmm. uniform on so nobody really cared about the other one to to 100 percent. there was a few of us that we would have our own small cliques within the team but as far as like a full team like feeling where you know everyone on that team has your back and everyone cares you know just because you're on the team they don't need another reason yeah. you know what i mean i've never felt that anywhere else other than in the gym doing jujitsu um, uh, like you said about how come, how much can you really know about yourself, Brad Pitt? How much can you really know about yourself if you've ever been in a fight? Until you've been in a fight, you know. And then you put yourself out there, and you put yourself into a situation where you're going to be challenged, and you grow, you know. So I find that there, where it's like I like to play video games, but um, shooting somebody else, you know, on a TV screen doesn't really give me any validation. But learning how to do a rear naked, you know, and doing it well, and being able to execute it off of, you know, somebody taking you down and doing a, doing a sweep. All of these things, they, they can relate to other aspects of your life because they build confidence. They, you know, they show you how to overcome adversity, even though you're going to have to do it a couple of times and you're going to get slapped in the face and it's going to hurt. But in the end, you know, your work ethics, it's going gonna, it's gonna to show through. Yeah. And jujitsu is all about work ethic. I mean, I don't know anyone doing jujitsu that's like, man, I can't wait to shrimp for an hour today. <laughs> but when you get done shrimping, you, you know, when you actually are able to apply that, you're like, oh, wow, that's why I was doing that, you know? Mm-hmm. So those little things build. And when, you know, and you can take that and transition it to any other aspect of your life. I really feel like you can. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that's what I think makes it so special. Yeah. Such a special thing is you can translate it. I played a ton of, you know, var- different varsity sports in school, and I can't think of very many. Maybe. On one hand, I can count the the transferable skills that I can uh, that I'm still using in my life from football or yeah. or you know the shooting team or something. You know, yeah. most of those skills are left on the field. Yeah. Whereas jujitsu, almost all these skills um, are translated in some way into everyday life and and improve everyday life. You yeah. know, from your nutrition to your strength and conditioning workouts to your cardio to and all that is affected in your me- yeah. mental well being. Yeah, and you know? to how you treat people. You Discipline, know, yeah. you never know who you're walking up on on the street and what kind of training they have. And that's what you realize about jujitsu is it's really, you know, you have these really skinny, nerdy looking dudes come in there and they're just badasses on the mat, right? Putting you in a rubber guard and choking your ass out. It really is a sport for the intellectual. It is a sport for the smart person, the unassuming person. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a system built for smaller, unassuming people to be able to defend themselves against bigger people, yeah. right? So oftentimes we'll have huge football player looking dudes come into the gym uh, expecting to just roll over all of us and dominate. But then, you know, they just like everybody else, we all pay our dues in the beginning. They get choked out a hundred times in, in one session too. and. You know, if their ego can't handle it, we never see them again. Nope. Um, but those of those who are able to set that aside for a little bit and understand that, wow, I, I really could learn something from these people, you, the, they can excel. That that uh, the knowledge base there and is just it's amazing. Mm-hmm. It really is, you know, and wisdom. Um, 
especially from like someone like Z who's been around, you know, for so long, he's seen so much, you know. And then like you, I mean, it's great having you there on the team to have that side of, to have that, you know, the psychological side of things mm -hmm. and what's going on, somebody that you can come to and talk to. Like, that's great, man. I really appreciate, you know, you being there. It's, it's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> well, I love being there. Um, yeah. However I can help out the team. And you definitely just, changed since I first met you, man. Yeah? How yeah. so? Well, you know, I mean, you have a beard now. Yeah. For sure. Before you were all clean cut and, uh -huh. and everything and still kind of, I guess, still look more like you had just got out of the military a little bit, you know? Mm -hmm. But I don't, I don't, you know, I didn't know too much of your backstory before that. So mm -hmm. I know you came from, what was it Fusebox? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So with Michael. Yeah. I need to watch. I need to check out him. He's got some things going on right now. Huh? Yeah. yeah. So, uh, yeah, you've, you've seen me change, change my facial hair mm -hmm. since you've met me. I, I don't know. I feel like you've, we've gotten more centered mm. since I first saw you, but you, you know, you've gone through, you know, some more surgeries and stuff like that too. And I guess at first we weren't really like, uh. I didn't really know you too well, mm -hmm. you know, and over the years I've got to know you, but I feel like watching you kind of from an outside perspective that you've definitely grown um, a lot more, like you said, more spiritually. Well, thanks. I appreciate that. It's, yeah. it's an area of my life that I've been working really hard to uh, to make really full, really full yeah. you know, because um, with, with the spiritual side of, of my life, it seems like whatever I put into it, whatever energy I put into it, I get back like 10 times, Yeah. you know, whereas in my everyday life, you know, with certain projects or something I'm working on, I may put in a lot of effort, but get very little back. Is, do you think that has to do with expectation? Um, Maybe yeah, you part of it, well, from... part of it is expectation. I usually keep my own expectations fairly low, um, but still there's, there's areas of all of our lives that I think we put effort into and receive very little back um just by the nature of whatever activity it is yeah um most nine to fives right exactly <laughs> but my spiritual life always pays me back yeah. you know and pays me back way more than i put in as long as i do something as long as i put in some effort uh, meditate or do a yoga or go to jujitsu or you know whatever yeah um so i I want to touch on real quick because you said, uh, you know, that Brad Pitt quote, you don't really know yourself until you've been in a fight. Mm -hmm. um, I've also heard it said that you don't really know anybody else until you have uh, been in a fight with them. Yeah, right. And so I like that aspect about uh, what we're talking about, too, because, um, you know, the people that we train with on the mat, I feel such a deep connection with them. But I think that has a lot to do with us sharing the struggle, sharing the challenge together on the mat and you know, simulating this, this fight sequence, this fight scenario. Um, we're we're uh, showing vulnerability. Yeah. You know, because you're putting yourself out there and, and taking a chance. Yeah. And you're trusting the other person is going to give you everything, but at the same time not, not kill you or injure you or, you know, they're going to grow with you. So, yeah, I feel like, yeah, there's a big, it's big, you know, there's a big connection there. Yeah, it's huge. Um I, I didn't even think about that, but uh, putting your trust in someone else not to hurt you yeah. in those situations and getting to, oh man, that just brought a flashback of like so many people coming in the gym for their first time with a big ego, trying to prove themselves and literally trying to hurt everybody that they roll with on the mat on their very first day, just to prove themselves, just to prove that they you know belong there, or that they're a tough guy. Um, and it almost never works out in their favor. No, it doesn't. And, you know, me being a bigger guy, I'm always thinking of that. I won't go 100%. 
you know, because if I'm like rolling with someone, you know, someone smaller than me, because I don't want to hurt you. And it's easy to do. So easy to do. I could just move one wrong way or, you know, and fall on you and fall on me or any of that stuff. So you want to take it into consideration, you know. The dude that, that my knee finally gave out on with, he was 19-year-old. It was Cole. He, uh, like, had won two two tournaments, had placed, uh, got a medal. And uh, then we were rolling around, and uh, my knee finally gave out. And I think he thought it was his fault. Well, no, I had, my knee was blown out, and I'm still doing this because I want to do this, and I like doing this. And I can't imagine how he felt. Cause he mm-hmm. thought it was his fault, you know, that he, cause he was the one holding my leg when it finally happened. And I tried to tell him, dude, it's not your fault. This, this isn't your fault. Well, he, you know, he stopped coming in, you know, and I, I wonder, I feel guilty, even though I don't know, I worried that it might've been because I was being inconsiderate with myself and my injury ended up making him real just apprehensive because he felt, you know, kind of like the uh, Meldrum, uh, Meldrum experiments where the people thought that they were shocking somebody even right. though they weren't and they felt that, you know, that level of uh, emotion, you know, is real mm-hmm. regardless. So, Yeah, I always feel terrible when I accidentally injure someone. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know other people feel terrible too. And, uh, you know, I, I try and understand that that's just the nature of being active. It's yeah. not even the nature of this sport in particular. It's the nature of every sport, it just and every activity. Yeah, it just happens. And, um, you know, unless someone is doing it on purpose, and we deal with those people pretty quickly, um, those people become not welcome very quickly. Yeah. But the people who, who don't mean to hurt people but still end up doing it, you know, it's it's an accident. And we all learn from those things, mm-hmm. you know. We all improve our safety around, you know, an injury once it happens. Oh, excuse me. Yeah, it's yeah. true, you know, and, and I, try, I try to think about that whenever I'm rolling with anybody. It's like, how, how can we do this and, and, and get better and do it and go home tonight? Yeah, know? exactly. That should yeah. be the goal. That's, that's, that's <laughs> one of my top three goals every time I compete now yeah. um, is to, number one, is to not get injured. Yeah. Number two is to have as much fun as possible. Yeah. yeah. And then number three is to win. Uh, the, the fun part of it is almost a given, though. Like once you get it out there and you start going, you can't well, you can't help but have fun. <laughs> yeah, but I've been in, in in tournaments too or in events where I've taken the competition way too seriously, mm. and then it doesn't become fun. Yeah. Then it becomes work, yeah. and um, I I don't like that. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I mean I don't do this for a job. I don't do it. Um, yeah, I do it because I love it. Mm-hmm. You know, and if I lose that part of this sport, then you know. There's no point in me doing it anymore. Yeah. I got into it because it was fun. I need to keep it fun. Yeah. And for so many people I see, you know, turn pro in MMA or turn pro in jiu-jitsu and it becomes a job. Um, and then they lose the fun of it. And I'm like, uh, that's like one thing I, I want to avoid so much. Yeah. So for you, um, again, getting back to your knee, re- you know, the rehab, the physical rehab was there. Um, and we got great science for that. My mm-hmm. knee, physical knee rehabs went pretty well. But the psychological rehab isn't something that's necessarily provided for you mm-hmm. unless you go see a sports psychologist or someone like myself mm-hmm. um, to help you work through that. Most people are on their own as far as psychological recovery. And after a major injury, I'm sure you can speak to this too, but after my major injury, it left me depressed. Mm-hmm. It left me addicted to opiate pain medications. Uh, so active addiction, it led me, uh, or it, it left me disconnected from my family and friend group because, um, with a knee injury, I'm stuck in bed like six hours a day in these stupid machines and stuff. Um, 
you know, it caused a lot of psychological damage and I didn't necessarily have anybody at the time to help me recover from that part. Uh, so even though my physical self was healed, um, my mind wasn't in the game or I might be coming back focusing too much on preventing injury to that thing that mm -hmm. it's, uh, it's preventing me from, you know, taking risks or, or being the person I was in the martial arts that I was before. Um, so yeah, how did you, you didn't have anybody either. Mm -hmm. I mean, you, you had me a couple times to yeah. talk to. And then my roommate and yeah. I was definitely detached from the gym because yeah. I would go into the gym and talk, but at the same time I felt like a tourist. Yeah, totally. You know, like, and, and it was only because I expected myself to be more, not because anyone else expected, because anyone in there knew that I had been injured, I'd been injured for a while, and showing up was awesome. They just wanted me to be there. I can still, you know, hear Courtney every day, John, just come back, mm -hmm. shut up and come back, you mm -hmm. know. Um, but I did, I kind of, I turned into myself, I locked myself in my room, you know, and was just doing stuff on the computer and just didn't have to worry. My roommate was there and he was cool if I needed him. But he was also a kind of you do you type deal roommate, you know, where we were best friends, but we're not each up, up each other's asses. Mm -hmm. So, um, and as far as like the pain medicines went, I stopped taking them after my first refill like went out mm -hmm. because I could tell that I was starting to want these things. And I'm like, no, nah, screw this. I can deal with this pain. So I just put my leg up in the traction and tried to limit mobility and I used a lot of cannabis mm -hmm. <laughs> to try to mitigate the, the uh, pain instead of using the prescription drugs that they had for me. But um, it's taken me a lot longer, I think, psychologically to get back to any state you know, of, of uh, confidence in the fact that I can do the things that I was doing before mm -hmm. um, the injury. And I know physically that my injury is fine because... Probably three weeks after I was back in the Zen gyms, he had us doing pettis kicks off the wall, and I could do it mm -hmm. just fine. Not even not even worry about it physically, but in my head, I'm Showtime like... Showtime kick? Yeah. Yeah. And in my head, I'm like, oh, my leg's about to fall off. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And even when the injury wasn't wasn't anywhere near your whole leg coming off, right? And so I feel like I was over just overthinking it. Mm. And um, I still feel like I do, you know? <clears throat> that's but, a big um, chunk of that uh, psychological rehabilitation mm -hmm. is... It's the overthinking. I think that's a one of the most common features of, of people who have to come back from things like that yeah. um, is overanalyzing, overthinking, you know, um, possible future outcomes that are not even they're not they're not real. Yeah. Right? It's, it's Until we um, recreate them for ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. Like um, I was talking with with my significant other about this the other day and the, the two different perspectives that we have of if and when people. Mm. And I'm a win kind of person because I'm I'm kind of cynical. So I think something's going to happen. Well, when it happens, I'll be ready for it. And she's more of an if. If it happens, we can deal with it this way. But we don't have to worry about it, which is really weird because I'm not the worrier she is. But she's the if person and I'm a win person. Mm -hmm. So maybe that's hmm. kind of why. Because I know it's going to happen, so I don't have to worry about it. And she's not sure. But uh, anyways... Um, it's you, you don't have to look at it as when it's going to happen. When am I going to get injured again? When, you know, it's it's if because it's always possibly there. But I feel like if might be a little more positive than, you know, than when you see what I mean. Yeah. Uh, or you could use the when method in an even more positive way to say, like, when I avoid injury Ooh. or when I uh, when. When, I, when I'm going to have practices, um, yeah, injury-free for the rest of my life, yeah. you know, and, and talking to yourself in that way as if it's an inevitability that you're 
going to be injury free. That you're going to be yeah. fine. And sort of, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's interesting. So setting up your your inner psychology to expect mm-hmm. um, to stay safe instead of expecting to avoid something. Yeah. Um, because then we're still focused on that thing that we're avoiding. The negative. Right. Yeah. We should be focused on, uh, you know, expecting good things to happen to mm-hmm. us, expecting and good results, expecting good outcomes, expecting not to get injured. And then if it happens, it happens, and you deal with it then. But if we if we expect um, to get injured, then I think that, you know, we're going to get what we yeah, expect. You, you make it. You make it so right. And that and that's kind of the whole cynicism is is one thing that I've been struggling with in all aspects of my life. You know, just because of all the things that I've seen gone up, I, I don't have too much faith in humanity, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And that doesn't mean, do I think humanity is in, like, uh, inherently good? Yeah, I definitely do, but I still think we kind of suck. Yeah, you know, and I feel like we're kind of lost. Yeah, for sure. yeah, definitely. And, um, you know, when, when it comes to that, I just, I think, uh, you know, my past really has shaped the, you know, your past does, it shapes you, the outlook of, of how you look at life, you know, your whole perspective, and it's really hard to change that. So, you know, saying thank you to whatever, just, just because, um, is along, you know, one of the first steps that I had on the route to not being so cynical about it all, not being a, mm. just a negative person in general. So how did you apply the thank you technique to your um, knee rehabilitation? Th- thanks for being able to walk still. Because I, like I went through rehabilitation with flying colors. Yeah. Like even though I had gained like 40 pounds, I was still in there like huh, 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 looking at the guy like, is this it? Are we doing more? Do I, you right. know, what's going on? Um, but it's, it's just uh, I have to keep telling myself over and over again, that, hey, you were doing this before and your knee wasn't at 100% before because I had torn my MCL and it grew back, but the the doctor said that my ACL was mushed, hmm. and I'm like, what is what does that mean? What is a mushed ACL? Because those things don't, you know, they're not like growing back yet. We mm-hmm. we can make them grow back, but it's uh, you know, it's I don't. What does that mean? So I wasn't at 100, percent and now I feel stronger than I did before, but I still am worried that, you know, that it's going to happen. Sure. You know, so I I guess it because I haven't started going back to the gym. Yeah, I don't know how far, you know, how far along I am in that whole process. Yeah, and, you know, it may never get to a point where you totally um, forget that the injury could happen, you know. Um, I don't want to forget. No, you should, and you shouldn't, uh, because that would be a waste of learning, you know. But, um, you know, for me, you know, I've been been through a ton of surgery. I've been through a bunch of recoveries. Um, I still go into the gym and my injuries, my past injuries are still on my mind every single training session. Um, but if I can, if I can put it in a way, you know, we're not necessarily seeking perfection in this way, um, with our mindset, we don't want, we don't can't expect to, to reach this perfect mindset where we don't even consider past injury, but we can expect improvement. So say uh, when I first started going back in after my knee injury, um, my psychological rehabilitation may have looked like um, I'm 50% confident in my uh, new knee tendons and I'm 50% not confident, um, 50% chance that there's going to be another injury, right? Mm-hmm. And then over time, what happens is the more training sessions I get exposed to where no injury does happen, uh, then this memory bank starts to starts to build up and I get more and more evidence to tell me that, okay, I am safe, I am capable, I can do this. And then 
it starts to shift a little bit more in, in my favor, positive way to whereas now I'm probably three years removed from my last knee surgery that I had. And um, I probably go in there and, you know, my past injuries or the potential for future injury is maybe 10% of my thought process in there. Whereas before it was 50%. Yeah. It was occupying much more space in my mind. And so just over time, you know, I still have the thoughts, but the thoughts become less powerful. They can, they carry less energy and less influence, but I still want to hold on to that last 10% because that 10% keeps me vigilant, keeps me safe, keeps me, um, considering my positions in relation to my limitations and my injuries, right? If I were to totally let go of that 10% and be like, I'm not going to think about my injuries at all then the chance of me re-injuring those things and pushing myself in ways that I shouldn't be pushing myself goes through the roof. Mm -hmm. But as long as I hold on to that little bit, like, well, got to take care of myself, got to take care of this knee. My knee won't go in these certain positions, so avoid those positions. I can maintain uh, safety with that little 10% of focus. Yeah. Um, Z and I were talking about this too. Like, for my, I had a pro uh, jiu-jitsu fight a, a few weeks ago, and leading up to the fight... Um, in the months prior and then in in the week before uh i was kept spraining my knees my lcls and, and mcls so a couple months before that i sprained both mcls and both lcls on my knees uh yeah just shit going wrong and shit popping out and um and then the week i you know i rehab 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 and then the week before i was rolling with z and my right knee you know popped back out um another sprain and so it was such a recent injury that when I went into my last pro fight, uh, I was a little too focused on that knee uh, in my own mind um, to the point where I got in my own way and wasn't focused enough on the match itself. Mm -hmm. um, and so I was in defensive mode the whole time. And Z pointed this out at the end. He said, yeah, you were playing really good defense. You defended everything he threw at you, but I only saw you attack twice. Uh, what was that about? And I had to think about it for a couple of days, but uh, you know, I came to the realization that I think probably 30% of my mental energy was focused on keeping that knee safe. And I told him that I said, yeah, I think, you know, I was probably only 70% in the match. 30% was worried about my knee. And he's like, wow, that's a big amount of your mental energy to not be present to not be focused, especially when your opponent is, as far as we know, a hundred percent in the match. Yeah. Right. So I need to bring as that's, that was a lesson that I learned um, and that I'll take with me moving forward is that when I compete, I need to take more mental energy and devote it to the actual present moment match and less devoted to concerns that I have about injuries. That if an injury is going to happen, it's going to happen mm -hmm. and I can maintain as much safety as possible, but that my focus should be on the task at hand. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, most definitely. I can see that. You know, and I, I think I wonder if that has something to do with it. Um, with me too is that I'm because I'll you know when I go into the gym like most recently I was in there on just open mat day and I was turtling the whole time just turtling the whole time sorry uh, just turtling the whole time and I wasn't being aggressive I was surviving and you know they couldn't they nobody could tap me but I still wasn't I was just laying on my back just waiting for the timer mm -hmm. you know what I mean and I and I hate that but at the same time I'm safe mm -hmm. I don't have to go out of this comfort zone to hurt myself or to risk anything and I'm not mm -hmm. going to hurt anyone else and and, uh, you know, as much as I can appreciate that, I don't like it. I don't want to be that, mm -hmm. you know, I don't want to be that, but I wonder why, 
you know, why I just keep going and reverting back to that because I think I got used to doing that at the gym with the injury because that's how I would kind of, I, because I, you know, I'd help somebody get ready for a fight and I was kind of like a trash can, I guess, in a sense. So you're helping them get ready for a fight. You're giving a good look to them and you don't have to be, you know, 110%. You, you know, you're, um, you're the punching bag. Yeah. You know, so, so in that regard, I just got used to being that person, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? And I didn't mind the role at all. It's a good role. You're still part of the team. You're helping everyone out. But when it's time to step up and start doing again, you know, you're so used to that role that it's hard to get out of that position, you know, in your mind, because you, you were comfortable there, you belong there and you didn't have to, um, you didn't have to put yourself out there, you know, to mm-hmm. disappoint anybody else or disappoint mm-hmm. yourself. When at the same time, you know, you might be disappointed in the fact that you're not putting yourself out there. Mm-hmm. So, what's your opinion on this? Because I've seen, well, I've seen you do both of these, and I've seen both of these from a lot of different people. But <clears throat> do you think it's more when you're when you're rehabbing an injury? Do you think it's better for you psychologically to continue to expose yourself to the environment and to be a part? you know, go into the gym when you're injured and, and continue to be a part, or do you think it's better for you psychologically to, to create distance and keep yourself separate um, to stay focused on, on your healing? What, what do you think? Because I've, I've seen you do both, and I've seen mm. it work for in both aspects for different people. I think, I think there needs to be balance. I think you need to be around your team because your team is there to help you recover. They're going to help you keep you, they're going to keep you uh, involved, keep you getting, you know, uh, going into it and being a part of and being a part of it and help you get back into it and give you the confidence that you need to say, hey, you know, I can still do this. I'm still part of the team. I still belong. I'm not a tourist, but you also need that personal reflection time so that you can, you know, figure out what you really want, like reassess your, you know, assess your resources, reevaluate and say, hey, do I want to do this? Is this worth it to me? And then you don't have to worry about pressures from your, you know, from your discourse community. You don't have to worry about social pressures. You can just be yourself. And then, um, you know, those two, I really feel like those two things, it's just, you got to balance it out. Because I I went both ways, but I don't think I balanced very well. And it really just kind of left me confused, you know, with how I felt about it, not how everyone else felt about it, because I know how everyone else feels about it, you know. I I don't have any lack of trust for other people. It's totally lack of trust for myself, Mm. you know? Yeah, so it sounds like overall you think that it's more beneficial to stay engaged, Mm -hmm. um, but also give yourself whatever adequate space you need to process things on your own and not to go too far into either extreme. Yeah, no, you know, two extremes are are bad in any case, you know? Yeah. So when, you know, if you, because when your injury first happens, you might have some sort of anxiety about it. So when you go into the gym, that cracks up this anxiety and pretty soon you're sitting there like, oh, God, I don't want to be here. I'm nervous. I feel bad about this. I don't, I don't want to be here. You know, but um, if you give yourself some time to heal and digest, you've got to digest stuff. You know, you can't just act like it didn't happen. And then the next day after surgery, I mean, I guess you could show up at the gym, but you still, you still got to rest, mm-hmm. like both physically and mentally, right? Or, um, or you're just, you know, just going to be, it's not going to end well. Yeah, I I have, like. I've done that the wrong way before where um i think the first round of surgeries that i had on my knee because i got an internal staph infection on my knee when they put in a cadaver tendon that had staph on it and so i had my knee was hooked up to a vacuum pump and i had a pick line also through my bicep into my heart so i was injecting myself three times a day with antibiotics and saline yeah and then i that staff 
Right. Keeping it under wraps. Jeez. And that was for like nine months. But um, I would wear, so this vacuum pump, uh, you can wear it on your shoulder. Right. It's a small compact unit. So I would strap it up around my shoulder. Um, I would tape my pick line you know, to, to my arm. And then I would go train like that, at least working <laughs> like footwork or um, jabs or something. When, there's no way I sh- I should not have been in the gym. I should have been laid up in bed. Mm-hmm. There's another time when I, when I tore my bicep off my um, tendon on my left arm and got it reattached. Um, I just could not give myself the time away from it because I thought number one, I was missing out on something. Uh, number two, I would come back and everyone else would be better than me. Number three, if I didn't show up, people were going to judge me and think that I was weak or whatever, all these ego things. Mm-hmm. And so what I would do is I'd go in there and I tie my arm up with my belt to my chest. Right. So then I would only grapple one armed and I did that for a number of months. Yeah. Um, shouldn't have been doing that. And I got really good with um, submitting people with one arm so that when I did get my other arm back, it was like an extra weapon. It was yeah. kind of cool. <laughs> but um, it definitely lengthened the amount of recovery time that was necessary to get that bicep back. Because yeah. right? even if it's tied to my chest, if you're laying on top of me, you know that's a lot of pressure on an arm that just had surgery on it, right? Yeah, so, right. so not good. It, it, I think it probably lengthened the, the recovery by four to six weeks. Um, so now I'm trying to teach myself that it's okay. It's okay to take a break. It's okay to step back, to th- think less about what other people are going to think about me and take care of me, yeah. right? If I don't take care of me and I'm too worried about them, I'm going to stay injured. You know, and you talk a lot about, you know, we're, we've been talking a lot about what other people think of us and, and how social interaction and things like that plays into our own psychology. Yeah. I know before the podcast, you, you talked to me about, um, you know, a growing interest of yours in social psychology. Mm-hmm. And uh, I love it. I don't know why. Yeah. So, I just love it. So tell me um, about what interests you about social psychology. And I, I know you had mentioned systems theory before. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. Tell me about that. Um, I guess with social psychology and, and in regards to uh, ecosystem science and sustainability, it kind of goes hand in hand because when you're looking at a, a sustainability science, you have to take all of these things into aspect. You have to take uh, social norms. You have to take political, you know, political um, agendas. You have to take uh, environmental like resources. You have to take people's perspectives. You have to take the available resources, the amount of energy, and everything's different. Every one of these situations is different. So when you're uh, when you're looking at social psychology in that aspect, you have to figure out how can I get somebody that may be suffering from an anchoring bias or may identify a certain way. How do I get them to see once again the greater good without offending them or or having some sort of back uh, backfire effect? So, so as an example, like someone who drives like one of those old school H1 Hummers, mm-hmm. right? Gas guzzler, pollutes quite a bit. Um, if you want to go talk to them about their uh, carbon footprint in the hopes that they change their behavior to positively impact all of yeah, humanity like and society. Convert to diesel maybe? Yeah, know, and trying like to convince people uh, that the greater good is more important than their individual needs. You find that fascinating yeah Yeah. i find the the way that you approach somebody and try and try to try to get them to change their their perspective on or outlook on life without having cognitive dissonance so they don't withdraw because most people withdraw you know if somebody says my favorite color is red and you say well red's a stupid color they're gonna be like well 
you, you know <laughs> what I mean? And that, you know, I know that's a real crude example, but that just seems to be human nature. And when it comes to a lot of the um, issues that we're going to face in the future with water shortages, you know, because we don't know if we're going to have a water shortage, but we should prepare. Because if we don't prepare and it happens, well, then we're going to have a, like Mad Max. Right. You know what I mean? Or we could have like a water world experience where the whole planet just is covered with water. Both were great movies yeah. and, and might be a cool future to have. It might be, you know, <laughs> definitely. I, I try to prepare for that. Not to sound too crazy, but sure. I try to prepare for that. But at the same time, if we don't um, realize that this is a possibility and we don't try to try to prepare for it, then I feel like we're doing ourselves a disservice. So, you know, when you, when you try to find somebody that feels a certain way about something, you know, or identifies a certain way, so they're taking their uh, social identification and taking the values from that and making them their own, it's really hard to talk to that person about anything. So if Yeah, you because want, then you're threatening, um, you're threatening their sense of self. Yeah. If, if someone takes some values and, and adopts it as their own now, you know, like I really value, for, for example, like with this Hummer thing, like I really value my Hummer and I really value where it can get me off road mm -hmm. and I really value, um, you know, all this stuff. It's going to be difficult for me to separate those values out and adopt new values. Mm -hmm. yeah. So, you know, I, I would reaffirm and say I, I think the Hummer is badass too, yeah. but there are better ways to do things. You know, and if we're not trying, because the Hummer was made because somebody found a better way to do things and it ended up being a Hummer. So why should we stop there? Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And that's kind of how I feel about it. But when, when you take ecosystem science or sustainability science, when you take natural resource usage, when you, when you start talking about uh, government politics and ethics and how, you know, the, all the rights for horse tooth, people up there complain in the summertime when it gets drained towards the end of it because there's no water there. But all that water is going to agricultural resources because farmers have the rights to it. You know, not the recreational people that are pissed off because their boat is in a dry dock now or whatever, mm -hmm. you know. Um, the, the greater good. It's the greater good. Like, do you yeah. want your boat or do you want to eat? You know, yeah. And, 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 it, and it's that simple and a lot of people don't see that. You know, they're, they're stuck in their bubble. They think that, you know, meat just comes in a grocery store mm -hmm. and it's just there and no animals are harmed in, in the process of, you know, making this stuff. And um, which once again goes, it's all relative back to that whole we're detached from ourselves and mm -hmm. from what's real. Yeah. You know, um, and when I when I read that about ecosystem science and sustainability science, I said, this is it, because I could get a job working with natural resources for the state. I could work for horse tooth. I could work for a cannabis company that's growing industrial hemp mm -hmm. and uses all of these natural resources to grow their hemp. And I help monitor that and say, well, we're using this much. We're doing that. So in so many ways, I can actually be a part of a change, mm -hmm. you know, of a more conscientious uh, uh, change towards just stability, you know, or, or, you know, a guaranteed future. Sure. And, and a big part of it is social psychology because we have to, con we have to figure out how to get people on board. Mm. You know, you should uh, you should read a book. Uh, it's called, I think it's called Propaganda. Okay. Um, it's by Edward Bernays, who, if I remember my history correctly, and don't quote me, audience members, um, but uh, I think Edward Bernays was Sigmund Freud's nephew, something like that. So some really close tie to Sigmund Freud, uh, and was highly influenced by his work. But Edward Bernays, um, he was. Uh, one of the first people interested in how to control um, the minds of the masses. 
and so he studied all these things and studied how to influence um, people's minds on a large scale. And so he wrote a book called Propaganda. And uh, unfortunately, he was hired uh, on a number of occasions by um, not so nice people in our world history to, to help them with their political campaigns, get elected, uh, create social change in the negative way with, with um, propaganda. But a lot of his techniques have also been used in um, advertising, still are today, marketing, um, and have been used in a lot of positive ways to help swing people using anti-propaganda and using um, you know, some of the same techniques, but for good reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, you know, I think that would fit perfectly with your interest in social psychology and like how to sway the minds of the masses without um, necessarily ripping their character to shreds mm-hmm. in the process. Without trying to lie to them or get them to be like this collective, like in a negative way, a collective mind because we're all different. But we should all kind of have the same moral foundations in a sense, I feel like. I guess this is subjective, but and some of those moral foundations, I mean, really just have to do with our connection to the planet because our, the planet is our steward. Mm-hmm. We, are, we are its steward, but at the same time, without us, it, it can exist just fine. Totally. But without it right now, you know, until we get some sort of Titan E deal going on, we're stuck here. Mm-hmm. And we need to we need to recognize that and not just say, you know, oh, well, I'm divine, so I don't have to worry about this because either there is an afterlife or we fancy ourselves anthropocentrically that so so well anthropocentrically that we don't have uh, an effect. You know, mm-hmm. we're just that great. And it's like, oh, you know, I mean, you know, 250 years ago, we were, we were killing each other. So and we're still killing each other. So how, how, how much have we actually changed, guys? Or is this right. just like, you know, greenwashing or something to try to make ourselves mm-hmm. look better. Yeah, and, you know, I don't know how I sit with that uh, that statement that, you know, all humanity should share similar morals and values. I feel like there'd be a lot of people who would disagree with you. Yeah. But I also feel like, in my heart, like, there's some truth to that and some, um, you know, what I feel could be useful, universal... Um, human laws maybe uh, or human values right like the only one i could think of on the moment that i don't think uh, too many people would have um, opposition to is like the moral that uh, to protect all life mm-hmm. right and that includes protecting human life protecting animal life protecting um, plant life protecting the life of the planet um, protect life um you know i mean we still got to eat sometimes too right have yeah have respect for um, your environment, have respect for others. These are all, or I think could be, um, shared human values. To some degree, yeah. why, you know, why not, you know? Yeah. Well, why wouldn't you respect respect one another and respect the thing that gives you life, you know? Respect the water that you drink. You know, some people say, I can't stand water. It tastes disgusting. It's like, have you ever been thirsty? You know what I mean? Because if you've been, like, really, like, absolutely, my tongue's swelling, I'm thirsty, mm-hmm. and my eyes are sinking back into my head, I'm thirsty, and you take that sip of water, you're like... This is the fountain of youth. This is the best thing ever, ever. invented. Yes. Oh, my God. Yeah. Give me more, you know. I, I want mean, all those people to go through just one weight cut <laughs> that we have to do for tournaments or fights, and then you'll love water. Yeah. Right? You just can't. I can't get over it. I can't get enough. Like, I'm going to go home now and drink some just mm-hmm. for talking about it, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but we, we people lack that appreciation because they don't have to struggle for it. 
Yeah. You know, and I also think maybe that comes back to jujitsu because it gives us struggle that we don't normally have in our lives, so it makes us appreciate not struggle. What are you looking at? Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Um, <laughs> you know, there's a lot of people out there that prefer um, softer, plush lives. They like conveniences and they like everything done for them. Mm-hmm. Um, but people like you and I see the value that um, challenge and struggle provides, and it's a part of our human makeup. It's a part of our history since the the moment we became human. Um, struggle is an essential component of human nature and human growth. And if we deny ourselves struggle and everything in, in our daily lives, and everything becomes marshmallowy and soft and nerfed up, then you know we are significantly limiting our growth potential as human beings yeah um, i hated participation trophies yeah i got i have probably 20 from when i was a kid in mm-hmm. soccer and baseball and you can you can ask my mom this to this day i remember probably six or seven years old and they came up with trophies we had won one game mm-hmm. and they were giving us trophies and i looked at him i looked at my mom and said why are we getting a trophy we sucked <laughs> like i didn't expect this i didn't want this trophy we haven't earned it just for showing up and i i still feel that way today yeah you know um, so if you could, because we're running out of time here, but if you could leave, um, you know, a couple lasting uh, insights or um, little gems of knowledge for the listeners out there, or just takeaway, some takeaway message um, from your life that you'd like to pass on forward to, to help humanity improve, what would that be? Uh, just be more open. Like, don't think that every time somebody disagrees with you, it's a personal attack, because it's not. You know, it's just somebody sharing their opinion and, you know, just like yours. If you guys want to, you know, if you want to be different or or get something out of somebody else, like listen to them and don't just wait for your chance to talk, you know, like try to really start understanding what's what somebody else stands for and what they mean instead of living in your own, you know, living, being so detached from the rest of the world. Right. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, we we need each other. We need yeah. each other tremendously, and we're losing touch with that. Yeah, we really do. And uh, you then know, go that, train. Yeah, go train. <laughs> go train right now. Yeah, that you know that what you just said ties right back to um, you know the conversations part of conversations with the mind that we need to open, remain open, and have a dialogue, have conversations, remain open to new perspectives, new findings, new insights, things like that. Because if you remain closed off and closed-minded and um, surface level with the people in your lives, there's no conversation there. Mm-mm. Conversation is a two-way street with some give and take on both sides. Um, it's learning on both sides. That's yeah. a conversation. Without that stuff, it's just one person just saying stuff they already know. So, yeah. To somebody who's not really listening. Right. Well, John, I want to thank you for being on the podcast today. For sure. Thanks for having me, man. Yeah, of course. I hope to have you on in the future. Uh, We covered a lot of great topics. I want to uh, remind our listeners that we are sponsored by uh, MindOps. You can find us at www.mind-ops.com for all your mental health and mental well-being and performance psychology and um, all your uh, psychedelic integration therapy needs. Um, reach out to us and that's also the best place to leave any comments or questions that you might have for myself or my guests there's a comment section on the webpage so just go to mindops.com leave a comment and we will get back to you 
And please, please, please continue to like and share the podcast. That's how we get the message out, and that's how we get these conversations out into our communities to affect greater change beyond just um, myself and my guests. So please continue to like and share our podcast whenever we share it on social media. Please feel free to donate if you want to contribute, uh, if you find the uh, the information valuable. Um, I promise all the proceeds go towards making the message better for you, the listener. We don't take any profits. And last but not least, check out our YouTube page, the MindOp YouTube page, where you can find a number of videos breaking down some of the concepts that we talk about on the podcast. Until then, we'll talk to you guys next time. New podcast coming next week. John, it was good to talk to you. Thanks again, man. All right. And for you listeners, we'll see you next time.